Hey there, welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Jason Barnes, and today we are joined by Dr. Matt Carlson to discuss lesions of the petrous apex. Dr. Carlson, thanks again for being here. Thanks a lot for having me. Now, today we're talking about an anatomic area. We're um, doing things a little bit differently. We usually talk about a specific de- disease process and systematically work through it. But today we're talking about an anatomic region, the petrous apex. So, uh, Dr. Carlson, just to start, can you tell us why does the petrous apex matter? Why should we talk about it? Historically, uh, petrous apex was involved uh, in the pre-antibiotic era with infection Uh, which would result in a lot of patient morbidity and mortality. Um, It's an area that's difficult to examine externally based on a physical examination. It's also an area that's very difficult to access surgically uh, to remove certain uh, lesions of the area. And it's an area that um, to be a good clinician or a good uh, otolaryngologist, it's beneficial to understand the different imaging characteristics because there's a whole host of different pathologies that can affect this area, all the way from completely benign anatomical variants to benign neoplasms to malignant neoplasms and severe infections. The Our conversation will get a little bit dense because we're going to be talking about anatomy and imaging, uh, but we'll try to break it down in a way that our listeners can understand. Can you first talk about the definitions of the petrous apex? What defines this region anatomically? So there's, uh, depending on how you break it down, there's five uh, plus subunits of the temporal bone. In the petrous portion of the temporal bone is a large, more medial portion of the temporal bone. It includes or uh, encompasses the otic capsule and many of the coursing cranial nerves and many of the foramina of the skull base as well. And specifically, the petrous apex is a a triangle with its base at the otic capsule. Uh, Based on some definitions, the base of the petrous apex is at the superior semicircular canal. Others will define it as the base being uh, the otic capsule itself. The peak of the pyramid uh, extends to the clivus, and then it has three sides, the middle fossa floor, the medial posterior petrous wall, and then an uh, extra temporal part that goes towards the infratemporal fossa. There are a lot of important um, arteries and nerves that course through it. One of the ones that uh, can uh, is always a consideration when you're thinking about surgical approaches in particular is the course of the petrous carotid artery. The petrous carotid artery will enter the carotid canal and then just below and anterior to the cochlea will enter its first genu to its horizontal portion. And it's the horizontal portion that courses through most of the petrous apex and it will pass by the foramenless serum uh, before it enters its uh, second genu and its uh, vertical portion. And a lot of times when conversations of the petrous apex come about, there's clinical relevance, but also board relevance to a couple of specific anatomical regions. Can you speak to those? Yeah, I think you're probably referring to um, Meckel's Cave and Durello's Canal. Uh, Meckel's Cave is a uh, potential space uh, that houses the Gasserian ganglion, the fifth nerve ganglion, the trigeminal ganglion. Um, It's bounded uh, by an envelope of dura made from the uh, tentorial edge superiorly and also the posterior fossa dura as it comes up superiorly into Meckel's cave. And so, it's a, again, it's a potential space created by two different dural leaflets. And it's a transition from the posterior fossa to the middle fossa floor for the fifth nerve. And tumors can spread into this area, particularly petroclival meningioma or chondrosarcoma. And in this region, if a, if a pathology involves Meckel's cave, the patient may experience fifth nerve symptoms. And the fifth nerve symptoms can 
encompass different symptoms. They can be facial hyposthesia or facial neuropathy where you actually have numbness in any of the V1 through 3 distributions. You can also have uh, trigeminal neuralgia, which is specifically different in that uh, you have uh, pain and it's a lancating electrical-like pain that's uh, on the same side of the face or the ipsilateral side of the face. The other um, anatomical feature that's commonly asked about is Dorello's canal. Dorello's canal is a a canal that's primarily formed uh, by the petroclinoid ligament or Gruber's ligament. As the sixth nerve courses from the posterior fossa into the skull base, it'll meet with the inferior petrosal sinus and travel anteriorly. While it's doing this, it'll pass through uh, Dorello's canal. Dorello's canal is a sort of bottleneck area. Whenever there's um, infection or swelling or uh, neoplastic growth in the petrous apex, it's a constriction site and it can end up damaging the sixth nerve in this area. And so um, involvement of Dorello's canal uh, classically results in a sixth nerve palsy. I think that thinking about these two anatomical regions can bring us to the next um, eponym that's commonly discussed in this area, and that's uh, Gradenigo's triad. Gradenigo's triad is a condition that uh, is, uh, or an eponym that's used to describe uh, inflammation or more commonly infection of the petrous apex. Um, and it's the constellation of a sixth nerve palsy, retroorbital eye pain, or headache. It's often related to trigeminal um, uh, discomfort or irritation and unilateral otorrhea related to otitis. So we talked about the anatomy, uh, specific anatomic features, and you started to talk about symptoms. Could you speak a little bit more specifically to the symptoms that can be involved with patients presenting with Petrus apex lesions? Yeah, so um, in medical school and residency, you're always uh, taught to localize the lesion, and there are some localizing symptoms that are highly specific for involvement of the uh, Petrus apex uh, uh, sixth nerve palsy uh, involving Dorello's canal, as we already talked about, is very specific for involvement of uh, the petrous apex, and also fifth nerve irritation. Those would be common manifestations for a person with a neoplasm, uh, such as a chondrosarcoma, for example, uh, involving the, the region of the petrous apex as well. There are some less specific symptoms that can occur from involvement of the temporal bone in general, and those include uh, hearing loss if there's impingement of the uh, the otic capsule or the internal auditory canal, for example, you might have sensorineural hearing loss or dizziness. You may have nonspecific symptoms of headache, and they, uh, just with all pathologies, it could be related to the disease process or it could be completely independent. Um, involvement of the facial nerve could result in facial neuropathy or uh, facial nerve spasm. Uh, and these would be the most common uh, symptom presentations that could be involved with the lesion of the petrous apex. And sometimes patients present asymptomatically. And when we look at an MRI, we start to decide what the pathology is in the petrous apex. However, there isn't always a pathology there, as there are some normal variants of anatomy. Could you describe some of the normal variants of the petrous apex that we can see? Yeah, that's a really good question, a very relevant question, because I'll say more often than not, I'll see a consult in clinic for an incidentally diagnosed lesion of the petrous apex, and the question is whether or not the patient needs treatment or what the what the disease process is. And as we alluded to earlier, the petrous apex is an area that you can't just easily biopsy, certainly not in clinic, and it requires a surgical procedure to do so. And so it's helpful if you can look at the features on an MRI, MRI for example, to, to find out if it's something that you even need to biopsy or go after to, to begin with. So there are some conditions of the petrous apex 
that are what you would what I would consider normal variants and certainly nothing that require biopsy and should be recognized based on a scan. Uh, the petrous apex uh, can uh, so during development the petrous apex in, includes red marrow that ge uh, generally graduates to yellow or fatty marrow over time. And that's how most people have a, their petrous apex includes some fatty bone marrow, but you can have varying degrees of pneumonization in the petrous apex as well. As well, so for example, on an MRI, you might have asymmetrical T1 hyperintensity in your um, from one petrous apex compared to the other, and this could be asymmetrical marrow. Asymmetrical marrow and varying de degrees of hyperpneumonization of the skull of the petrous apex occur in at least 10% of temporal bones. You can also have uh, petrous apex effusion, um, which I would say is not a normal variant, but it's not an uncommon thing. So a person who has recurrent otitis media or eustachian tube dysfunction may have tracking effusion that can uh, develop in the petrous apex, and this is also something uh, that uh, typically doesn't require intervention unless it uh, develops symptoms, for example. So those are non-pathologic lesions, but when we start to talk about pathologic lesions of the petrous apex, what are they and how do you break them down into different categories? Uh, there's a lot of different conditions that can affect the petrous apex. You can have um, cystic lesions, which, which encompass the most common uh, category of lesions involving the petrous apex. You can have infectious lesions, which historically uh, was the most common pathology involving the petrous apex with Gradnigo's triad, in the, particularly in the pre-antibiotic era. You can have solid neoplastic lesions involving the petrous apex, and you can have other lesions. Uh, I think it's worth pointing out here also that it's a commonly reviewed board question, and uh, that is um, where in the temporal bone uh, is the most common location to have metastatic disease? And the answer is uh, as you might guess, or, uh, being the subject that we're on, it's the petrous apex. And the petrous apex uniquely contains a lot of uh, marrow and uh, uh, slow-flowing uh, blood through the sinusoids of the marrow, and this is an area where you can collect hematogenous malignancy as it metastasizes, uh, and, uh, and therefore, for that reason, uh, metastatic disease of the petrous apex is not overly uncommon for people with diffusely metastatic disease. When we break down those categories, again, cystic being the most common, by far and away, and I want you to remember this because it's commonly asked, by far and away the most common lesion, cystic lesion in particular, of the petrous apex is cholesterol granuloma. And we'll get into that in a little more detail in a bit. And there's also cholesteatoma, or what we would call epidermoid when it involves the petrous apex and mucosal. Infectious lesions, again, are petrous apicitis with Gradnigo's triad sometimes in osteomyelitis. And uh, neoplastic or solid neoplastic lesions in, include uh, meningioma, such as a petroclival meningioma, a chondrosarcoma, which has a predilection for the petroclival junction, chordomas, which typically are more midline compared to chondrosarcomas, neurogenic tumors, such as a fifth nerve tumor, trigeminal schwannoma, for example, and metastatic disease, as we said earlier. And much less commonly, you can have other conditions, osteodystrophies, abnormal bony growth, fibrous dysplasia, or you could even have a carotid aneurysm as it courses through uh, the horizontal segment. Again, uh, quite rare. So as you said, the cystic lesions are the most common in this region, so we'll spend a majority of our time talking about these. We talked about cholesterol granuloma, epidermoids, and mucoceles. Could you start by telling us about cholesterol granuloma, maybe just describing cholesterol granuloma in a nutshell? Yeah, so... 
Uh, cholesterol granulomas are, uh, the, again, uh, the most common cystic lesion of the petrous apex. They're often diagnosed incidentally. Patients will often report headache or some other nonspecific symptom. They'll get an MRI scan, and they'll see this lesion in the petrous apex, and of course, everybody will point to that and say that's the cause, but I'll tell you that in many cases, a small uh, petrous apex cholesterol granuloma is probably not the cause of this, or said another way, removing or treating that lesion is probably not likely to improve the patient's headache. Uh, the It's commonly asked about, and you should... Uh, grill this into your brain. Uh, the imaging uh, characteristics for a, a cholesterol granuloma are hyperintense on pre-contrast T1 and hyperintense on T2 imaging. There's essentially no other lesion of the petrous apex that has that imaging characteristic. And again, it seems that question seems to find its, its way in uh, board questions over and over. If you got a CT scan, you'd see uh, remodeled bone and uh, uh, secondary to displacement by the large cystic structure, a large cystic cavity. There's a couple different theories that I think are worth mentioning very quickly uh, as to why they develop. The old uh, theory is the obstruction vacuum theory where eustachian tube dysfunction results in negative pressure and it might result in a mucosal bleed, for example. And that, that uh, blood in the petrous apex can create a foreign body reaction or granuloma formation. The second theory um, was proposed by Jackler, and that's the exposed marrow theory. And that's the idea that some of the red marrow or some of the vascular marrow in the petrous apex might become exposed by the uh, neighboring adjacent pneumatized petrous apex, and that can create a situation where it could bleed into itself. Again, that blood product creating a forward body reaction and precipitating uh, the development of cholesterol granuloma. We'll get into surgical approaches a little bit more later when we talk about um, just the general approach to treatment of petrous apex lesions, but I do think it's worth mentioning uh, the treatment, strat treatment strategy, treatment paradigm for cholesterol granulomas. Most cholesterol granulomas today are observed. They're often diagnosed incidentally in patients without attributable symptoms. But for the cholesterol granuloma that's growing and causing uh, localized symptoms, and you feel like it needs treatment, the treatment is surgical uh, evacuation of the cyst. The idea with the approaches are that you don't have to remove the entire cyst, but rather you can make an opening into it so it can drain fluid. There are some problems with that, though. Cholesterol granuloma uh, uh, classically has a motor oil, uh, thick, viscous material in there mixed with loculations and granulation tissue. And so just by opening a small opening into the cyst, you often don't effectively drain it. And so some people more and more will uh, advocate for full removal of the cyst rather than just making an opening. So we talked about cholesterol granuloma, and as a reminder, we're talking about cystic lesions of the petrous apex. And the next one we want to talk about is an epidermoid. What is an epidermoid? So whenever you have an epidermoid cyst anywhere in the body, it's given different names depending on where it's at. So if it's in the ear, in the tympanomastoid cavity, it's called cholesteatoma. When it's in the petrous apex, or according to a neurosurgeon, it would be called an epidermoid. And they all have the same histopathology. That is a sac of uh, uh, keratinous debris uh, s surrounded by uh, uh, stratified squamous epithelium. And that cyst lining is the problem of the of the pathology and that it keeps shedding the, the, the keratin within it. In the interest of time and keeping it this concise, the main thing I want to point out in this is are the imaging characteristics of a petrous apex epidermoid. And the thing that you should remember is that on imaging, uh, the diagnostic evaluation of choice is MRI with diffusion-weighted imaging, and you want to use non-echoplanar uh, diffusion-weighted imaging. Uh, epidermoids will restrict on imaging, and they'll be uh, very bright on the scan.
So the next lesion we'll talk about are mucoceles. In my experience, we've mainly talked about mucoceles in rhinology clinic. What are mucoceles of the petrous apex? Mucoceles of the petrous apex are uncommon, but they do occur. Uh, it is an interesting phenomenon. If you talk to rhinologists and they're performing uh, a frontal sinus obliteration, for example, which uh, you know, think, thankfully it's not commonly done much anymore, but the, the dogma is you have to remove every last mucosal cell, uh, otherwise you risk developing a delayed mucosal later. So it's trap secretions. You have these uh, mucus uh, secreting cells and they don't have anywhere for the mucus to go and it basically builds on itself. It's interesting that the, uh, the mucosa of the temporal bone is inherently different. The development of a mucosal is, ex is exceptionally uncommon in the temporal bone, both either spontaneously or following surgery, for example. Um, uh, but uncommonly, you can develop a mucosal the petrous apex. On imaging, the features of a mucosal are isointense uh, on T1, uh, hyperintense on T2, and then uh, more of a rim enhancement surrounding the mucosal on T1 plus gadolinium. And the, on CT scan, you'll have um, remodeling and loss of the bony septae in the center of the lesion. So it's expansive and, and pushes. And the treatment for a mucosal is general, uh, generally surgical uh, a resection of the, of the cyst cavity. We're done talking about the cystic lesions, which again comprise the majority of lesions of the petrous apex. I next wanted to move on to the infectious lesions, apocytis and osteomyelitis. Can you speak about petrous apocytis? Petrous apocytis is, uh, I would say, largely of historical interest. It was a very common uh, condition in the pre-antibiotic era and it would result in inflammation with or without uh, abscess formation in the petrous apex. And with that, you can have what we uh, discussed earlier, Gradnico's triag, which is six nerve palsy, retroorbital eye pain, and otorrhea related to infection. Uh, it will present just like um, what you might expect an abscess to present with. It'll um, result in uh, T1 hypointensity, hyperintensity on T2 in a uh, a rim-enhancing lesion on gadolinium, or the lesion might be heterogeneously enhancing throughout the entire um, lesion if it's primarily granulation tissue. CT scan will show uh, surrounding bony destruction. And moving on to the next category, solid lesions of the petrous apex, can you give us a comparison and contrast of the different lesions here and how they would present on imaging? So I think beyond just getting into the very specific details of each pathology, we can present some concepts of, uh, about imaging for different pathologies that apply to not just the petrous apex. But common solid neoplasms of the petrous apex include meningioma, uh, trigeminal schwannoma, chondrosarcoma, chordoma, and then malignancy. Um, when we talk about meningioma of uh, the petrous apex, we're typically talking, talking about a petroclival meningioma, a very large lesion that may involve the posterior uh, fossa or the middle fossa or span the two areas, and it commonly involves Meckel's cave. It's usually um, uh, doesn't have a considerable po component going into the bone, but it can. And you can also have a very infiltrative meningioma that, that really do invade the bone that can be difficult to uh, diagnose radiographically. But just for a broad concept, meningiomas are hyperintense on T1 post-contrast. In general, they're very homogenous, so they don't have the you know, cystic heterogeneous appearance that schwannomas have frequently. Um, they're uh, hypo to iso-intense on T1, and they tend to be iso to hyper-intense on T2. 
And some imaging features that are very characteristic from meningioma are the dural tails, and that can be, again, anywhere. It's a, it should be a buzzword for you. Intratumoral bone formation, and then hyperostosis of the base of the tumor. Those are all features that can occur with meningioma. When we talk about trigeminal schwannoma, or any schwannoma for that matter at the skull base, uh, they'll tend to dumbbell around constriction points. And so a trigeminal schwannoma, if it starts in the posterior fossa, might constrict around the region of Meckel's cave and then expand again. And you can have a dumbbell appearance. This same sort of behavior occurs in, for example, jugular foramen schwannomas as well. You can have a large posterior fossa component that constricts at the pars nervosa and then once again expands uh, in the soft tissues of the neck. So if you see a dumbbell lesion of the petrous apex, uh, you should definitely consider trigeminal schwannoma. Schwannomas uh, demonstrate a more heterogeneous uh, but avid contrast enhancement on T1 uh, post-contrast. And on T2, they tend to be iso-intense or hyper-intense. The third lesion and the fourth lesion uh, that we'll commonly kind of group together and try to distinguish from one another are chondrosarcomas and chordomas. The the main distinguishing feature that separates these two is the epicenter of the tumor. So if you kind of look at the entire tumor and you say, well, where's the center of that tumor? A chondrosarcoma should be eccentric. It should not be a midline lesion most of the time. And it's usually centered in the region of the foramen lacerum, which is one of the hypotheses of where they uh, they develop from, the cartilaginous portion of the foramen lacerum, or at the synchondrosis uh, or the suture line between the temporal bone and the sphenoid bone in the clivus. That's in contrast to chordoma. Chordoma, more commonly, are midline lesions. They can involve the clivus, the sphenoid, uh, or anywhere in the midline uh, neuroaxis. So I think if you remember those concepts, you'll be able to distinguish a lot of these neurogenic tumors, not only in the petrous apex, but also in other areas of the skull base. So we've talked about the imaging characteristics and trying to formulaically diagnose these lesions. What's your approach to the treatment paradigm regarding these lesions? So um, I think the the major fork in the road when you're considering management is uh, treatment or non-treatment. And so you have to distinguish what we would consider benign variants, anatomical variants that don't require any further attention. And those would be asymmetrical pneumonization, um, asymmetrical marrow of the uh, petrous apex. And I would even start to group petrous uh, apex effusion. It very rarely requires any intervention. And our, those, th- those things are almost always uh, universally just observed. Lesions that uh, are kind of straddle that uh, border between treat- needing treatment or not, I would say the one that in that area that you would talk about the most, again, is, is uh, cholesterol granuloma. And as we alluded to earlier, it's the most common cystic lesion of the petrous apex, and again, hyperintense on T1 and T2. Most of these lesions are diagnosed incidentally, and many of the symptoms that a patient might experience what we are commonly not attributable to the lesion or wouldn't get better with treatment. So a small or medium-sized cholesterol granuloma would commonly be observed. If it was very large, and particularly if it was growing or symptomatic, then it would be treated. And the treatment for cholesterol granuloma, again, at least uh, on board, uh, board question, is a drainage procedure. You uh, create an opening into the cyst cavity so it can drain. Um, a mucosyl, and particularly a small mucosyl could be initially observed, but if you have an expanding mucosyl, general, the general recommendation is to treat it uh, surgically. Epidermoid, just as uh, paralleling cholesteatoma, the general rule is that you do treat these surgically if they are discovered. Uh, there's no role for radiation, and generally we don't observe them if we're uh, sure that it's an epidermoid or a cholesteatoma. 
the management of uh, you, the neoplasms of the petrous apex are primarily driven by whether or not you think they have any malignant character. Chordoma and chondrosarcomas are generally uh, treated surgically with or without radiation therapy. A meningioma, small meningioma, may be observed. Uh, if it's larger, it might require surgery or radiation. And the same would hold true with the trigeminal schwannoma. A small one may be observed if it's growing or uh, significantly symptomatic. Uh, then typically microsurgical resection, but radiosurgery is an option as well. And when we talk about these interventions, specifically surgery, can you tell us about the surgical approaches to the petrous apex? Yeah, this is a great topic. Um, it's something that's commonly asked on on boards, and, and it just goes back to the idea that the petrous apex is an area that's somewhat difficult to fully access and get very good control over. And it's the, re- the reason is, is it's a more medial structure, and it's really surrounded by a lot of important anatomical structures that you can't really move without having a lot of morbidity. And that those include you're working around the carotid artery, and you're also working around the facial nerve, and lastly, the otocapsule. And those three things really define what kind of approaches you're using. The first question you always ask is, do you just need a biopsy or do you need to fully remove it, do you think? The second question you have to ask is, does the patient have useful hearing in that ear or not? Because then you'll either be working around or taking advantage of going through the inner ear to, to identify the structure or to, to, to reach the pathology. Um, and then the, uh, the additional question is, is, are you accessing the petrous apex itself or do you also need access to the posterior fossa or middle fossa? Where is the majority of your tumor or the majority of your pathology? And so I think those are the big questions uh, that you have to ask uh, going in when you're thinking about surgery. If you're thinking about accessing the petrous apex in a person with non-serviceable hearing, then a trans lab or a trans cochlear or a transotic approach is the most direct route. And those uh, procedures are non-labyrinthine sparing. And so uh, with the procedure, the patient would have uh, would lose vestibular function and all hearing in that ear. But they can provide very good exposure to the petrous apex without any requirement for brainstem um, retraction. Uh, importantly, the difference between a transotic and a transcochlear, the transotic is a situation where you suspend the facial nerve in a bony canal, meaning you leave all the bone around it and you don't mobilize it. And that's in contrast to a transcochlear approach where you mobilize the facial nerve. The transcochlear approach provides better exposure, but will always require and uh, provide some level of, at minimum, transient facial nerve paralysis, but often uh, even a mild long-term facial nerve paralysis from access. So those are the non-hearing sparing procedures. If your patient has good hearing um, and you want to uh, access the lesion, then you're working around the labyrinth in the carotid artery. If it's a low anterior petrous apex lesion, a transnasal procedure often will provide you good access. If it's a larger lesion or located more superiorly, typically a transtemporal approach will provide better access. So a middle fossa craniotomy, an extended middle fossa craniotomy can access the uh, anterior petrous petrous apex quite well. You could perform a quasi's triangle uh, approach where you're drilling the bone uh, between the uh, petrous apex and the trigeminal nerve, uh, laterally to your uh, uh, petrous carotid artery, medially to your petrous ridge, and posteriorly to your internal auditory canal. And that provides some exposure to the petrous apex and the posterior fossa. You can also perform a retrolabyrinthine approach, and that's good for more posterior-based lesions. You can also even perform these limited procedures, such as the infracochlear approach, and that's really probably only good for a biopsy or opening a cyst, for example or even a subarcuate tract. You could open a subarcuate tract. There's been several reports of doing that, but again, very limited access overall. 
Well, Dr. Carlson, thanks so much again for being here. We've discussed a pretty dense topic, uh, and I'll try to review it here uh, quickly. We're talking about lesions of the petrous apex. The most common symptoms that are localized to this region are trigeminal hypostheses due to the proximity of the fifth cranial nerve and retroorbital eye pain or lateral rectus palsy, uh, especially due to the sixth cranial nerve being nearby. There are normal variants that are sometimes mistaken as pathologic, and these include effusion, asymmetric marrow, or asymmetric aeration of the bone. And when we break down uh, lesions of the petrous apex, we can break them down into four separate categories. Cystic lesions, which comprise the majority of these lesions, infectious lesions, solid neoplasms, and other things such as aneurysms and osteodystrophies. When we talk about the cystic lesions of the petrous apex, cholesterol granuloma is the most common, and it's important to remember that these are hyperintense on pre-contrast T1 and T2 MRI. Epidermoid is another cystic lesion, and the buzzword here is that these will be bright on MRI with diffusion-weighted imaging. Mucoceles are also included here. They'll be iso-intense on T1, hyper-intense on T2, and can have rim enhancement on T1 with contrast. When we talk about infectious uh, lesions of this area, the main thing to focus on is Gradnigo's syndrome, which is more historic, but this is described as a sixth cranial nerve palsy, retroorbital eye pain, and otorrhea. Solid neoplastic lesions include meningiomas, which are uh, homogenous, have dural tails, and are bright on T1 with contrast, trigeminal schwannomas, which can have dumbbell appearance and will be bright on T1 with contrast, though will be more heterogeneous than meningioma. Chondrosarcoma will not be midline because it will be closer to the foramen lacerum, and chordoma will be closer to midline, emanating more likely from the clivus. Surgical intervention uh, depends on the lesion uh, and Things like cholesterol granuloma do not require surgical intervention all the time, but other things like epidermoid and mucoceles, uh, surgical intervention should be considered. And finally, when we think about the surgical approaches to the petrous apex, if we're not trying to sp uh, spare hearing, we can consider translab, transotic, or transcochlear approaches. There's also the possibility of transnasal endoscopic approaches. There are trans transtemporal approaches, including the middle cranial fossa, craniotomy. And then uh, for more limited exposure, you can do retrolabyrinthine and infracochlear approaches. Dr. Carlson, that wasn't really a nutshell, but is there anything else you have to add? No, I think this covers a very dense topic, as you said earlier, and hopefully we were able to weave in and out some main concepts that you can remember and also apply to different pathologies. And also, hopefully, uh, we did a good job of injecting a lot of the uh, high-yield board review topics. This is an area that's commonly tested on, particularly from the standpoint of imaging features. Thanks for having me. Well, it's time to bring our episode to a close. But before we do, we'll finish with some questions. As a reminder, I'll ask a question pause so that you have time to think or press pause yourself and then give the answers. So the first question is define the anatomy of the petrous apex. The petrous apex is best described as a three-dimensional triangle with the base located at the otic capsule or the superior semicircular canal and the peak is at the clivus. The medial side of the triangle faces the posterior fossa 
and the superior boundary is the middle fossa. The next question is, what is the most common lesion of the petrous apex and what are its characteristic image findings? The most common lesion of the petrous apex is a cholesterol granuloma, and this is characteristically hyperintense on pre-contrast T1 and hyperintense on T2 sequences. The next question is, what is a petrous apex epidermoid and what are its imaging characteristics? An epidermoid is histologically identical to a cholesteatoma. The center of this cyst contains keratinous debris and the outside has a wall of stratified squamous epithelium. The lesion is hypo-intense on T1 and does not enhance with gadolinium, and it's hyper-intense on T2. But most importantly, the lesion restricts, so it's bright, on non-echoplanar diffusion-weighted imaging. For our fourth question, what is Gradnego's triad? Gradnego's triad is classically described as a cranial nerve 6 palsy, retroorbital pain, and otorrhea. This is typically associated with petrous apocytis, a condition that was more common in the pre-antibiotic era. That'll do it for today. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.